come back, we managed to combine our brain strength, combine all of our brain power, and get about the equivalent of a pigeon. So we managed to find my way home, but that's about it. But, uh, yeah, so Stefan's here now. My internet's been so this could be interesting. <laughs> yeah, Stefan's in there. I can see on the monitor yes, your, your internet's went to yellow <laughs> bars, and it keeps on dropping to red, so we'll see how the connection goes. Um... Well, it was the connection was terrible, and we fixed it, and it was fine until we hit record, and then oh no, it's, it's we'll just now it's fine. Just ignore it. It's it'll be fine. It'll behave if we pretend it's not there. It's like an it's like a bad child. If you ignore it, it just settles itself down. That's how it works, isn't it? Don't give it the green so I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something that requires attention. Right, and I'm just coming out the gate straight away with just a random stupid thing. There is yes. still a blockbuster around. Like, and the last blockbuster, it is, is still a blockbuster. Yeah, uh, it is. I'm not too sure where it is, but it's the very last blockbuster, and it has like in like big title thing. It's very last one, none of them. And it actually has 16 copies, copies of Morbius in it to rent. So it's legitimately, it's still open because it's got Morbius in. Where? Uh, where? <laughs> Just where? You can go uh, to the location of the, lo the last blockbuster. It's in... Uh... It is in Bend in Oregon. <clears throat> so it's in the US. It's in the US. Uh, it opened in 1992 as Pacific Video and then in 2000 was converted Dude. into a blockbuster franchise and it's the last remaining one. <clears throat> uh, in 2019 it became the last that. remaining store. Yes. We are older than this. But yeah, so... We are older. Amazingly, there is something still there, still alive. I don't know how. I don't know how Black Blockbuster is still alive there, but it's it's hanging in there, dude. Yeah, but hey, but no, well, I just thought that was sorry, cool. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, anyway, I, I'm, I'm going found to... some things as well. Okay, uh, I am going to jump straight into one of the topics that we would have had two weeks ago had I not been going on holiday and other things intervening. <coughs> and it was it was yeah. we decided we were gonna do like a, a few war things and bits and pieces and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Uh so in seventeen fourteen there was a Norwegian captain and an English captain that had an, a 14-hour-long ship fight, so basically an entire day fighting each other on ships. Yeah. And this is the, the good old-fashioned wood broadside fire cannons. Afterwards, both ships were badly damaged, and the Norwegian captain was running out of ammo, so he sent <laughs> an envoy to the English ship asking if he could borrow some of their ammo. We, of course, said no. Oh, and, dude, that's uh, not so <laughs> and swi swiftly captured him. Uh, he 
He was uh, court-martialed after the indecisive sea battle. Uh, hold on. Hold on, Memento. Imagine how fantastically British that would have been if he was like, dude, I've run out of ammo, can I? And we were like, you know what, it's been a good fight. Yeah, you can have a couple of cannonballs. <laughs> yeah, I know, mate. <laughs> Uh, he encountered a frigate under the under the British flag near Lindesnes, while flying a Dutch flag on the Lovandals Galahe himself. The other frigate, frigate was a galley carrying 28 guns, which had been equipped in Great Britain for the Swedes, and it was on its way to Gothenburg under the command of a British captain named Bachtman. Uh, the signals for, for the this Norwegian guy's ship to come closer, and as he raised the Danish flag, they immediately fired a broadside on him. Uh, in the in the British captain, where uh, Wessel met a tough tough match, uh, the combat lasted all day, and when it tried to escape in the evening, they set more sails and continued the duel. The fight was interrupted by nightfall and renewed again indecisively the following morning. So they stopped when <laughs> night fell and then continued on in the morning yeah, after everybody had had some sleep. You can't see when it's dark, man. There's no light in the sea. <laughs> exactly. Uh, both ships were badly damaged after around 14 hours of fighting when Wessel was running out of ammunition. He sent an envoy to the British ship, cordially thanking the British for a good duel, and asked if he could borrow some of their ammunition in order to continue the fight. Right, His to, request to was denied fair. and the captains drank to each other's health before the ships dispersed. To be fair, it would have legitimate. He would have legitimately just been borrowing it because he would have immediately fired it back. <laughs> exactly, that's the thing. He would have. It's been. the most legitimate promise of a borrow in history. I'll it borrow is. it. Especially I'm going to give war. you a bat in about thirty seconds through the side of your ship. But can I borrow it? But it, it, this is how cordial <laughs> war was back then. His request was denied. The captains drank to each other's health before the ships dispersed. When he heard about the incident, King Frederick IV of Denmark asked for the admiralty to court-martial the Captain Wessel. He <laughs> stood trial in, Nove in November 1714, accused of disclosing vital military information about his lack of ammunition to the enemy, as well as endangering the <laughs> ship of King Frederick IV by fighting a superior enemy force, known as the British oh, no. Navy. So, basically, he got wrong. They, they went, no, why, look, you could have picked on anybody. Why did you go after the British Navy, right? And then Why he did went, you go and... after the British Navy and then give up the information that you had ran out of ammunition? Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, like, as if he was meant to just, what, start firing, like, Pirates of the Caribbean and load the cannons up with forks? <laughs> I think it was, like, he was meant to run away, but, but the problem is, like, the English ship had a bit of a fight, decided... You know what? This fight isn't going anywhere. We're gonna, just going to sail away. And this guy gave chase, opened his sails, and decided to chase afterwards. So we just turned <laughs> around and went, okay, fuck you then. We're just going to destroy you. That is my level of ambition and stupidity and unpreparedness all in one. It is. Uh, the spirit with which he defended himself and the contempt he poured on his less courageous comrades took the fancy of Frederick IV. He successfully argued a section of the Danish naval code which mandated attacking fleeing enemy ships no matter the size, and was acquitted on 15th of December 1715. He then went to the king asking for a promotion and was raised to the rank of captain on the 28th of December the same year. So he just managed to avoid getting a court-martial and then not even... 20 days later, not even a month later, went to the king and said, you know what, can I have a promotion? But do you know what as well? <laughs> I feel sorry for the other people that were serving in the Danish Navy at that point. 
because he'd successfully argued that the naval code does say that no matter what the size of the ship is, you have to chase it if it's run away. And at some point, imagine being the guy out there on a frigate when like a man of war sails past and just fucks off, and you go, "Oh god, I'm gonna have to chase it now, on, or I'm gonna be bollocks." bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> just, just captain's like, you know what? That page gets torn out. We didn't see a man of war. Nothing happened. Well, Everybody then, so on the crew are, they, says so. They argued that he endangered a ship by attacking the navy. He argued that he uh, gave chase as is in the naval code. So I'm assuming the naval code says that you both have to give chase to any ship, no matter what size. But also, if you're necessarily in danger of a ship, which you would by chasing a ship superior to you, then you'd, you'd be court-martialed either way. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was the naval code that said that he had... Uh, that he had oh. endangered the ship. I think it's or if it's just because he like attacked a British that... ship. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the fact that it was a it was a ship that had like it was under the king's navy. So it's like you're endangering a ship in the king's navy. Therefore, you're endangering the king. So no. to be fair, as well, 1700s, and he attacked the British navy. He's pretty much endangered Norway there because if we're getting pissed off, we didn't have the best record for forgiving and forgetting. <laughs> Even for the best part. He <laughs> yeah, was only pro- it was only promoted to that frigate two years earlier, and our, our frigate had twenty eight guns. There's only had eighteen, so it was it's legitimately an, it was legitimately an under equipped ship. Ten more can make all the difference. Uh, he was he was promoted against the advice of the Danish Admiralty, who considered him unreliable. After officially complaining about his dreary commanding officer in Norway, vessel was transferred to the Baltic Sea command of Ulrich Christian Gildenlove, who appreciated and utilised Wessel's courage. Wessel was already renowned for two things, the audacity with which he attacked any Swedish vessels he came across, regardless of the odds, so legitimately what got him court-martialed, and his unique seamanship, which always enabled him to evade capture. In other words, he was good at running away and pissing people off. And he'd attack anything that had a yellow and blue flag on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I just say, because I'm fully on his side now, even though, you know, it was the British Navy that he pissed off initially. There's the um, thing, it was, it was a Swedish I... ship under the British Navy. It was like a, Brit- a oh. British Navy ship that was being gifted to the Swedish and it was being transported under the captainship of a British captain while it's still being a Swedish ship because it had a Swedish name. It was just it had an English captain and was part of the British Navy gifted over to the Swedish. So do you think he started, he saw that it was Swedish? Right, he started attacking it, and then he seen the British Navy officers on board and just thought, "Oh shit!" He saw the red coats <laughs> and just sat there going, "Fuck, I've 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 messed up, y'all lads." But we're gonna do it anyway. Um, also, I'm fully invested in being on his side now, even though he did attack the British. But, um, you know, you said he had ten. He had how many? Seventeen cannons, and they had twenty-seven or something. He had eighteen, and they had twenty-eight, so right. he had ten less. Exactly. And and he ran out of ammo first. He was saving ammo. That was a smart thing to do. He took less guns because he would have run out of ammo quicker. Yeah. I'm on Would his you... side now. <laughs> no, hold on. That confused me even more because <laughs> he ran out of ammo with less guns and conserving ammo compared to the 28-gun ship. Yeah, but Kyle, if you are the British Navy, generally you're very well prepared anyway because they were easily the best Navy in the world at the time. Yeah. They were, but at the same and... time, if you're a 28 gun ship, surely you're going to run out of ammo quicker than an 18 gun ship. That's cons- like if only if it's only if you take the ammo. same amount of ammo. That's what I'm saying. We would have took a lot more. But can I just yeah. point out the interesting thing there? 
all However, the British Navy were doing was delivering a ship to Sweden. They weren't going out for war. They weren't actively looking for war. They weren't looking to engage anybody. They literally, all they had to do was sail, and, and it's quite a short journey, really, from England to Sweden, yes? And they took yeah, enough and... ammo with them to outlast a, a Danish fucking warship that was looking for war. Well, yes, if we are going to transport <laughs> a ship to one of our allies, we are going to make sure our said ship fucking makes it. <laughs> yeah, if it encounters when... pirates or anything else, they're going to know about it. Usually when people are doing that, they'll take the ship that's a gift that will be protected by a small fleet that has lots of ammo. They won't just load up that one and go, you know what it is? Go for it, it'll survive. Also, it's kind of sad now that he heavily damaged it. Because when we sailed at the shore, like it was nearly sank, and they were like, well, this was a gift, but a Danish guy fucking attacked with. But it's fine, he ran out of ammo. Here he is. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Uh, did I tell you, did we talk about on here the only successful, what is it? Wait there. Uh, we may have talked about it um, before on here. Did 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 Against here we go. Uh, the capture of the Dutch fleet at Dan at Den Helder. I do apologize. Before you do that, I've just read further. Right, you're gonna like them even more because this is your idea of a retirement. <laughs> Tordenskoid compelled him to raise the siege and retire to Sweden. He did so by pouncing upon the Swedish Sweden. Fleet. Sweden was how we attacked all the time. Yeah. He's like, you know what, I've spent 30 years attacking these, let's go live there and see what it's Apparently the Dutch were just constantly <laughs> at war with Sweden. Uh, if when In the course of 1716, Charles XII invaded Norway and laid siege to the fortress of Fredericksgrald, he compelled them to raise the siege and retire to Sweden. Oh, he did so by pouncing upon the Swedish transport suite, laden with ammunition and other military stores, which rode at anchor in a now dangerous fort, with two frigates and five smaller ships, he conquered or destroyed around 30 Swedish ships with little damage to himself during the battle. So he he got told to retire, and he went, no, fuck that, I'm just going to cut off, cut off all the transport. That is retire. He's making sure everyone else retires as well. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to retire, so is everybody I've been fighting with for the past 20 years. <laughs> exactly. I'm forwarding them, because I think you're going to love them. Yeah, I'm going to read into that. Uh, uh, about the capture of the Dutch fleet. Oh, you're frozen. Hello? Hello, you're back. Hello. Uh, have we talked about the capture of the Dutch fleet at Den Helder? I don't think we have. But right, it the was Dutch, on the, the, considering no, that is about the Dutch fleet, the Dutch fleet apparently have some fucking mad war stories. Well, this is the capture of the Dutch fleet, so this is one that didn't go in their favour. Although the, the one before didn't really go in his favour. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the Dutch, when they go navy in. Uh-huh. Interesting. What's uh, not not. Um, downfalls. On Interesting the night exploits of 23rd of January, 1795. Yes. Yes. Uh, a French revolutionary has came close to a Dutch fleet. And I'm going to butcher words here. Uh, the Dutch oh, so, 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 at anchor in the Neo Deep 
new? Do you, new the, the, new they've come new? up against Hazard. Is of the tone of Den Helder. Yes. It is the only successful capture of a naval fleet uh, by cavalry. <laughs> I feel like we might have touched on this, but we didn't get into the full thing previously. But yes, go for it. I am. You were about to ahead of me. The lag. I know, the lag's a bit nuts. Do you know what? Sorry. Da -da -da -da. Okay, so he he's left to try and rejoin and hopefully fix his connection. Hopefully this syncs his audio for everybody doing the podcast and stuff. Uh, he's back now. We'll see. Is it any better? Got away with that one. I mean, your green screen isn't active, so... There we go. There we go. <laughs> Uh, one more thing. Uh, yes, it's the it's the only successful cavalry charge against a naval fleet in history. Um, so they were frozen in anchor just east of the town of Den Helder after some hussars had approached across the frozen near New Deep. The French cavalry negotiated that all four Dutch, 14 Dutch warships would remain at anchor. The capture of ships by horsemen is an extremely rare feat in military history. Oh, shit. Yeah, no shit. We've managed to capture a fleet with horses. No, dude, it's it gets <coughs> even better. Please tell me one that like no. Please right, tell are me you like, ready? One of the ships was actually at sea, but they still somehow managed to capture that one as well from the land. So I'm just gonna read you the the the, the headline starts of what it is. So the day, twenty third of January, seventeen ninety five. Location between Texel and Den Helder, Dutch Republic. Result: French victory. Right? Belligerents: Dutch Republic versus French Republic. I'm going to skip all yes. the commanders and come back. Strength, Dutch, 14 warships. Yes. Strength, French, one Hussar regiment and one infantry battalion. Casualties and losses. Casualties and losses. The Dutch, 14 warships captured. The French, none. The best thing about it is the Dutch, they just wandered upon these Dutch ships frozen. Yeah. Right? The, the uh, commander for the Dutch fleet was Hermanus uh, Rienches. Right? All right. The commanders for the French army were Louis Lahieu and Jan Wilhelm de Winter. <laughs> de Winter <laughs> managed to capture a fleet in ice in winter. I like it. <laughs> yeah, the French units were the 8th Hussar Regiment and the Voltigeur Volt Company of the 15th Line Infantry Regiment of the French, Re French Revolutionary Army. Jean Charles Pichigru. Was uh, the leader of the French army that invaded the Dutch Republic. The Dutch fleet was commanded by Captain Hermanus Rienches, uh, and the action happened during the first, the War of the First Coalition, which was part of the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, so basically, as I skipped through it, it was in the middle of uh, the winter of seventeen ninety four and ninety five was exceptionally cold, causing the Zuidse to freeze. Uh, Petchigrew offered the the general brigade of Jean Wilhelm de Winter to lead a squadron of the Eighth Hussar Regiment to Den Helder. De Winter had been serving with France since 1787 and would later command the Dutch fleet in the disastrous Battle of Camperdown. So he, he he captured these to the French and then went on to lead the Dutch fleet later on. <laughs> Please tell me it's the same fleet. He ended up capturing them and then he ended up just leading these exact same ships. Like the same ships got like ransomed back or something. Then he ended up in charge of the exact same ones because that would just be beautiful poetry. 
dude, it gets even better, you know, when, when you read about it, right? Uh, General de Winter arrived at Den Helder with his troops during the night of the of January 1795. The Dutch as expected, but they were trapped by ice. Each hussar carried an infant the fifth line. So, literally, um, after a careful approach, the hussars covered the horses' hooves with fabric to prevent noise and slippage. The Lieutenant Colonel Louis-Joseph Lahir went across the ice uh, with a few of his men. The French were allowed to board the Dutch ships for negotiations. The French received the assurance from the Dutch captain that the vessels and their crews would remain at anchor until the political situation uh, would have, uh, in the Dutch Republic would have become clear. Neither side. With the 14 warships, 850 guns, yes. and several merchant ships uh, now still in Bratavian possession, the French submission of the Netherlands was brought this is one of the only instances in recorded military history wherein a cavalry came close to a fleet. Um, yeah. I, that's so, like a lot a of them, this is... cav cavalry charges against tanks and stuff that you hear about. But it's against fucking shit. Um, so, so do you wonder what... Uh, no, do you wonder what... I want to know how De Winter ended up changing sides and working for the Dutch. He was a French soldier from the from like the eighties. How did he end up working for the Dutch afterwards? I'm not sure, but all nearly then given back to the Dutch. Right by the French. Right, the Admiral did seventy six, and it was captured by the British in seventeen ninety nine. The land was captured by the British in 79. Fulhelm was captured by the British in 1797. Princess Louisa was captured by the British in 1799. Admiral Plate was sold to be broken up in 1799. The frigates, the um, was captured by the British in 1797. Argo was captured by the British in 1796. Uh, Aliante was captured by the British in 75. Then there were the Hulks. At the Admiral General yeah, was sold in 1795. And Amsterdam was sold in 1795. And then the Corvettes, Ankhusen, uh, broken up in 1800. Venus, captured by the British in 1796. Echo, uh, wrecked and wrecked sold in 1796. Dolphin, uh, burnt or captured in Brats unsure by the British in 1799. But so basically, we set fire to it. We're not sure if we actually did it after that or if we just sunk it. Uh, Palace captured <laughs> by the British, 1797, and Zipard wrecked or broken up in 1805. Then there was uh, Cutters, uh, there was Lynx, which was a prize to HMS Cirque on October 1799, Snell Herd captured by the British, 1795, and Volk captured in 1799. So basically, after we, after the French either took or give back the ships, we just went and captured them all. And sunk a couple. So we did what the British did best, and we just decided all these ships are ours. We're going to capture or sink them. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Uh,
So basically in February 1785, a massive mutiny broke out amongst the Dutch sailors who hadn't made paid for nearly a year and who thought that now the old republic had ceased to exist, they were no longer required to adhere to naval discipline. This led to a mass of Dutch sailors leaving the ships with only skeleton crews remaining in place. So this was later on. So that, that's why uh, we captured a hell of a lot of them in 1799 because they all basically pissed off. They just ran. Yeah, just the went, Dutch, no, the Dutch, you know what it is? You're not paying us. Fuck this. I mean, that's all makes sense. You're not paying with, fuck it, they can have the ships. It, it, it does do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I, do blame have, them. I do have another war guy. I do have to find him. Well, I believe I have another war guy. Some here, somewhere, somewhere. Yeah, so I see who, who finds it first. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Auschwitz. Him. Auschwitz? That's not a I war win guy. Auschwitz. It is. Top trumps. Well, sort of. Uh, there is a guy called Rudolf Vruber, and another man. And uh, <laughs> would you like to is, is, hold on, hold on. Can you say the other man's name, or is it just an unknown other man? Uh, it's an unknown other man. It's just another man. Okay, I, I wasn't sure if the name was very German, and you just didn't want to try it. <laughs> no, he, he just uh, he just escaped with another man. Okay. <laughs> Go on, then. Uh, oh, hold on, hold on. Alfred Wetzler, or Wetzler. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they managed to escape Auschwitz because the no, they noticed while in Auschwitz that after prisoners went missing, uh, the guards only searched for three days. So they simply hid in a hole for three days outside the inner perimeter fence and on the fourth day, fucked off. Okay. So the the notice that they couldn't constantly be searching for people. They needed the prison guards in the prison, so they only searched for escapees for three days. So they just... They waited for that's quite smart actually because you've left so you're not in the thing they'll look for you but you're still in enough that they're not going to be looking in the inside fence that's yeah. quite smart and then by the time you do leave they don't know you've not left until then so they've already looked for three yeah street smart exactly I'm trying to find out where it says when he actually escaped. Uh... <clears throat> no, fuck knows. Oh, there we go. Uh, he encountered an acquaintance from Denava, uh, Alfred Veltzer, who had arrived in 1942 and was working in the mortuary. Uh... Uh, the camp underground had organised the escape, supplying information for Verba and Wetzler to carry, uh, or like other people. Uh, and Wetzler sounds like a comedy skit. A locksmith had created a key for a small shed in which Verba and the others had drawn a site plan and dyed clothes. Uh, Pharaoh from the central registry supplied data from the registry, Philippek, which was Philip Muller, in Hut 13, <laughs> added the names of the SS officers working around crematoria. A plan of the gas chambers and crematoria is records. Uh, 
and they smuggle clothes out for the escapees to wear, including suits from Amsterdam. Uh, and they had supplied socks, underpants, shirts, a razor, a torch, as well as glucose, vitamins, margarine, cigarettes, and a cigarette lighter that said Maiden Outfits. <laughs> so they've literally got like loads of shit. But yeah, he, he had managed to escape by hiding for three days when he noticed. They don't give a fuck after three days. Let's just hide and then the search will be called off. Oh, that's quite smart. I like that. Yeah. So it's like think... escaping but not escaping. Yeah, it's just, it's half escaping. Waiting so yeah, for the guards. you, you, it's, you it's have like to be within the like inside fence. Escaping. Yeah, you have to be within the inside fence. If you leave the perimeter of the inside fence, they assume you've escaped and search outside. So if you leave the inside fence but stay in the outside fence, then they look for you outside for their three days. They don't you? Then when they come back into the inside fence, you then go outside the outside fence and they're not looking for you anymore. That's that's yeah, exactly. really smart. Honestly, when you first read it, it sounds like video game logic where you just hide for a little bit and the enemy forgets that they're meant to be looking for you and just wanders off and goes <laughs> and does the one thing. It's just that it takes three days instead of three minutes. Yeah. And I bet they weren't walking past, like, stepping over the hole that they were in and they're just sitting there like that. <laughs> I, I would bet money that they did. <laughs> uh, so, I found my guy. Mm-hmm. I told you about Todd Jones. Who? This is another guy you can add to your list of excellent people. Todd Jones. Todd Jones. Uh, he was called Jones, but his name was Todd Jones. He was born 25th of December 1880 and died on the 30th of January 1956, age 75. Uh, there is a statue of Jones at the Runcorn War Memorial in Runcorn in Cheshire, where he was born and where he died. Um, and he was the recipient of a Victoria Cross, the highest award for gallantry in the face of the enemy awarded to the Commonwealth Forces. So, um, yeah, so he was born on Christmas Day as well. That's when hell um, good... I mean, I suppose a lot of people are born on Christmas Day, so it's not that yeah. bad, but okay. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a private in the 1st Battalion, the Cheshire Regiment, and the British Army during the First World War, uh, where he was known as iconically as Todger Jones. Uh, he was 35 years old when, on the 25th of September 1916, during the Battle of Morval, uh, Jones performed an act of bravery which, for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. He was with his company, uh, covering the advance in front of a village when he noticed an enemy sniper 200 yards away. Uh, for, for Americans, that's 183 meters. This is going to be in yards, so this may be confusing. <laughs> Uh, He left his trench on his own, crossed into no man's land without any cover and fire, and although one bullet went through his helmet and another went through his coat, he returned to the sniper's fire and killed him. Um, (laughs) So the sniper saw him come and managed to pop off two shots and miss him, just, and then he just returned fire and killed him. Yeah. Nice. Uh, sorry, I'm sorting around and things. Um, so yeah, he ran across no, no, no man's land with no cover and fire straight towards a sniper that was 200 yards away. It took two shots that didn't hit him. Uh, near the enemy trench, he saw two more Germans firing on him while simultaneously displaying a white flag. Jones shot them. Upon reaching the enemy trench, 
she found several occupied dugouts and single-handedly disarmed a hundred and two Germans. Single-handedly <laughs> disarmed a hundred and two Germans. Didn't kill, disarmed. Yeah, disarmed. Uh, three or four were officers and the entire trench was taken by Jones and his comrades. Uh, he's, he's buried in the Runcorn Cemetery and his Victoria Cross Medal group is displayed at the Cheshire Military Museum in Chester. So, basically, um, what the story behind it is, the, he saw, they saw the sniper, they were told not to advance. Uh, well, the, yeah, they, they were, were told support, hold your ground. They were supposed to advance. They were trying to work something out, at which point he went, fuck it, you know what, I'll go for it. Cover us. And then just ran. And everyone was like, what? So he ran at the killed the sniper. <laughs> then they realised what he was doing. They started following him. When he got close, there was two Germans waving a white flag, which when he got a bit closer, then started shooting at him. So he killed both them and dropped into the trench and started disarming and taking prisoners, at which case the rest of his company went and helped him. But he got uh, thingy uh, credited with it because it was basically his fault that they could not do it. Uh, but he's honours, man. I love the fact that he single hand he, he went into a trench alone and started disarming and taking prisoners. He didn't just go into a trench and start shooting people. He went into a trench and thought, you know what, I can take prisoners here. There's twenty of them and one of me, but I can take prisoners. It's the most British yeah. attitude in the world. Yeah. So he's on us as well, because his full medal entitlement was assured as follows. So uh, he was awarded the Victoria Cross on the twenty sixth of October nineteen sixteen. He was ordered the Distinguished Conduct Medal after that. doesn't say when. He was ordered the 1914-15 to 15 Star. He was ordered a British War Medal. He was ordered a different 1914-15 to 15 Star. He was ordered a Defence Medal. Uh, because, he had a qualif- because he had a Victoria Cross, uh, on the 12th of May 1937, he was uh, given a King George uh, VI Coronation Medal. Right, because he had a Victoria Cross on the second of June, nineteen fifty-three. He was given the Queen Elizabeth the Second Coronation Medal, and then my favourite one in nineteen twelve. Right, no idea why he got it, but he was given the Territorial Force Efficiency Medal. The Efficiency Medal, the Territorial Force Efficiency Medal. He wasn't part of the Territorial Force, though. Well, he must have been. It's it's a, an award for the long service in the territorial force between 1908 and 1921. So he must. It's like it, you have to have a minimum of 12 years service, uh, and war service counts as double, so minimum six. Okay. Uh, in uh, actually at war, um, but yeah. So so he's got a hell of a lot of medals. So Todger Jones for running head on with a sniper and capturing 102 Germans. Yes, well <laughs> done to Todger Jones. Also. I love the fact that his nickname was Todger Jones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his service number was 11000. That is the best service number in the world. <laughs> How... His service number is just 11000 and his nickname is Todger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well done, Todger Jones. I do have other uh, people of note that you can add to your thing, but I don't have to go through them all today. That is perfectly fine. Everyone, if people haven't gathered listening or watching, we are just going to drop people of note. That's the new thing that we tried to start doing last time, and then we had a few weeks off. But just people of note that did mad things that deserve mad respect. Chances are most of them will be British, but I feel like that Dutch captain kind of deserved some respect there for Manjun. So <laughs> ask to borrow some ammunition after a 14-hour fight. 
there are some good ones, man. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I'm just looking here. There's a guy here I wanted to. <laughs> I have found you in a catastrophe, or Jay, or John, more than any one of you. Okay. Uh, apparently, there was a chief baker on board the Titanic. Uh, yeah. That's how big the ship was. Uh, and while the ship sank, he drank an entire bottle of whiskey and spent three hours in the minus two degrees water before he was rescued alive because the whiskey just kept his body temperature up. So That's more like it. He downed an entire bottle of whiskey and managed to survive in the freezing cold temperatures because he just had so much in his <laughs> blood. He was just hot. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I do. These are all just little mini tad bits. I don't have much else to go on them. It's just little tad bits. Um, one of the unifiers of Japan, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, once built an entire castle in secret near a castle he had put under siege. Let that sink in. He built a castle in secret next to a castle he was sieging. After 80 days... How, how did he hide it? <laughs> after 80 days, he had the trees covering it cut down. So he built an entire castle in a forest and then got all the trees cut down around it afterwards, making it seem like a castle had sprung up overnight. His enemies surrendered shortly after. He managed to convince these enemies that he had magically made a fucking castle appear overnight because he cut down a forest to reveal a castle that had been built. <laughs> that is, yeah, that that's quite impressive. That so, what, how how did the how did they hide it? They hid it in forest. They just hid it behind loads of trees, and I'm guessing after eighty days, like to reveal it, they just chopped down the entire forest around it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds absolutely mad when you say it out loud, but yeah. He, he, he was a Japanese samurai. Uh, he was a daimyo of the late Sengoku period, regarded as the second great unifier of Japan. So he is one of the big boys. Uh, there is... Oh, I need to find my guy here. His nickname was Monkey, or Saru. He managed to do that, and his nickname was fucking Monkey. Man, your nickname doesn't... Matter. Edmund Keane. We're going back to Shakespearean times, yeah? Uh, November the 4th, 1787. To 15th May 1833. Right? He was a celebrated Shakespearean British stage actor and he was born in England. But he performed in London, Belfast, New York, Quebec, Paris and was well known for his short stature, tumultuous personal life <coughs> and controversial divorce. Controversial right? divorce, of course. But there, there is many. So he was born in Westminster uh, in London um, yes. and his father uh, was thought to be Edmund Keane as well, um, an architect's clerk, and his mother was an actress. Um, Keane made his first appearance on the stage, age four, as Cupid in Jean-Georges Nevers' Ballet Simon. As a child, his vivacity, cleverness, and ready, <laughs> ready affection made him a universal 
favourite, but his harsh circumstances and lack of discipline both helped develop self-reliance and fostered wayward tendencies. About 1794, a few benevolent persons paid for him to go to school, where he did well, but finding the restraint intolerable, he shipped as a cabin boy at Portsmouth. Finding life at sea even more restricting, he pretended to be both deaf and lame, so skillfully, so skillfully that he deceived doctors at Madeira. On his return to England, he sought the protection <laughs> of his uncle, Moses Keane, a, a, a mimic ventriloquist and general entertainer, who, besides continuing his pan- pantomimic studies, introduced him to the study of Shakespeare. At the time, Charlotte Tidswell, an actress who had been especially kind to him from infancy, taught him the principles of acting. On the death of his uncle, uh, she took charge of him and had begun the systematic study of the principle of Shakespearean characters, displaying the peculiar originality of his genius by interpretations entirely different from those of John Philip Kemble, then considered the greatest exponent of these roles. Keane's talents and inter- interesting countenance caused a Mrs. Clark to adopt him, but he took offence at the comments of a visitor and suddenly left her house and went back to his old surroundings. He got adopted, got pissed off and just left because someone insulted him. Yeah. Uh, At at 14, he obtained an engagement to a player leading characters for 20 nights in the York Theatre, appearing as Hamlet, Hastings and Cato. Shortly afterwards, he was in Richardson's Theatre, a travelling theatre company. Uh, The rumour of his abilities reached George III, who commanded him to appear at Windsor Castle. He subsequently joined Saunders Circus, where he, where in the performance of an equestrian feat, he fell and broke both legs. The accident leaving traces of swelling in his insteps throughout his life. Uh, at this time, he picked up music from Charles uh, Inkledon, um, dancing from Deville, and fencing from Angelo. In 1807, he played leading parts in the Belfast Theatre with Sarah Siddons, who began calling him a horrid little man, and on further experience of his ability, said that he played very, very well, but that there was too little of him to make a great actor, because he was short. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He made an early appearances with Mrs. Baker's company in 1808. He joined a provincial troupe of the actor Samuel Butler and went on to marry Mary Chambers of Waterford, the leading actress, on the 17th of July. His wife gave birth to two sons, uh, one of whom was the actor of Charles Keane. So that's that's his son. So, so um, he's a little guy who so far managed to trick <laughs> trick the navy and all of its doctors. Leave school because leave school to join the navy because he thought it was restrictive, and decide the navy was too restrictive as well. Get adopted by someone who thought his abilities were spectacular, and then leave said adoption because someone insulted him, uh, and then. Get invited to a performance by King George, to which he broke both his legs. Yeah. Then he learned dancing, fencing, and acting. Oh, dancing, fencing, dancing, fencing, and music. Music. Got married yeah. and had two kids. He's right. Had a tum- He's had a tumultuous life. Right. That's till he was twenty-one. Now we're getting into the adult stuff. <laughs> Because uh, that's only the start of his life. So okay. for, for several years, his prospects were gloomy. Uh, in 1814, the Committee of Drury Lane Theatre, which was on the verge of bankruptcy, resolved to give him a chance among their experiments as they were making a win to return of popularity. When the expectation of his first appearance was close upon him, he was so feverish that he exclaimed, if I succeed, I shall go mad, as he was unable to afford medical treatment for some time. 
this elder son died, or his elder son died the day after he signed the three-year Drury Lane contract. Uh, his opening at Drury Lane on the 26th of January 1814 as Shylock roused the audience to almost uncontrollable enthusiasm. Contemporaries recognised that Keane had brought dignity and humanity to the portrayal of the character. Jane Austen refers to his popularity in a letter to her sister Cassandra on the 2nd of March 1814. It says, Places are secured at Drury Lane for Saturday, but so great is the rage for seeing Keane that only a third and fourth row could be got. Uh, successive Appearances in Richard III, Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth and King Lear demonstrated his mastery of the range of tragic emotion. His triumph was so great that he made himself on what that he that he himself said on one occasion, I could not feel the stage under me. <laughs> um on 80, in 1817, the local playwright named Charles Book submitted his play The Italians, or the fatal accusation of Drury Lane, for which Keane was to play the lead. The play was well received by both counsel and actors until Keane seemed to have a change of heart and began to make several offhand remarks that his part was not big enough for him. Then, after a performance in February 1819, where Keane went out of his way to botch the opening night of, a Swiss- of Switzerland by historical novelist Jane Porter, for whom Keane had had a personal dislike, uh, Book pulled the play out of contempt pulled the play out of contempt for Keane's conduct. After much cajoling to still perform the play by theatre staff, Mr. Book then later had it uh, republished with the preface concerning the incident, including <laughs> excerpts from correspondence between both involved parties, which was later cha- cha- challenged in two books, The Assailant and <laughs> the Assailant Assailed and A Defence of Edmund Keane Esquire. A result was a loss of faith on both sides, and the play began being performed anyway on the 3rd of April 1819 to a disastrous reception thanks to the controversy already surrounding Keane's previous conduct. Um, On the 29th of November 1820, so the next year, uh, Keane appeared for the first time in New York City as Richard III at the Anthony Street Theatre. The success of his visit to America was unequivocal, although he fell into a vexatious dispute with the press. In 1821, he appeared in Boston with Mary Ann Duff uh, in The Distressed Mother by Ambrose Phillips, uh, an adaption of Rancine's Andrew Mack on the 4th of June 1821, returned to England. Um, he was so far, the, so good. Yeah, he was the first to restore the tragic ending to Shakespeare's King Lear, to which, which had been replaced on stage since 1681 uh, by a happy... By, Nahum Tate's happy ending adaption of the history of King Lear. Keane had previously uh, acted Tate's Lear, but told his wife that the the London audience will have no notion for what I can do until they see me over the dead body of Cordelia. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, Keane played the tragic Lear for a few performances. They were not uh, well received, although one uh, critic described his dying scene as deeply affecting, and with regret it reverted to Tate. Um... Now, his private life. Keane's lifestyle became a hindrance to his career. As a result of his relationship with Charlotte Cox, the wife of a London city alderman, Keane was sued by Mr. Cox for damages and criminal conversation, or adultery at the time. Uh, damages of £800 were awarded against him by a jury that had, deliber- that had deliberated for just 10 minutes. The Times launched a violent attack on him, the adverse decision of the criminal conversation um, caused his wife to leave him and aroused against him such bitter feeling that he was booed and pelted with fruit when he reappeared at Drury Lane and nearly compelled him to retire p- 
permanently into private life. Um, on his second visit to America in 1825, it, it was largely a repetition of the percussion for which he had suffered in England. Uh, some cities showed him in a spirit of charity. Many audiences subjected him to insults and even violence. In Quebec City, he was much impressed with the kindness of some Huron Indians who attended his performances, that he was purportedly made an honorary chief of the tribe. Uh, Keane's last appearance in New York was on the 5th of December 1826 in King Richard III, uh, the role in which he was first seen at America. Um, so if he managed to somehow, via a performance, become an honorary chief of a tribe of Indians while in now, America. This is the best one. He returned to England was ultimately received with favour, but by now he was so dependent on the use of stimulants that the gradual deterioration of his gifts was inevitable. Still, his great powers triumphed during the moments of his inspiration over the absolute wreck of his physical faculties. His appearance in Paris was a failure owing to a fit of drunkenness where upon the start of the play, uh, ten minutes before Keane had left, nobody could find him. As an actor had to stand in as the lead role as he was the headline act, the crowd started booing and throwing fruit uh, and projectiles at the actors on stage, such was the terrible performance, uh, about 30 minutes into the play, and it was realised by someone that one of the people in the crowd was a now drunk and keen. So he had turned up drunk to the show that he was meant to be he, on so that he could He was the, the lead the actor. He was the lead actor. He was meant to be there. That's why a lot of people were there. He got left, got pissed, went back to see what was happening. Everybody was booing them and throwing shit at them, and he just joined in even though they were booing because he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> He was probably so pissed out of his mind he didn't even realise it was at his show. Yeah, and, and so his he, eccentricity, his eccentricities at the height of his fame were numerous. Some Sometimes he would ride recklessly on his horse, Shylock, throughout the night. He was presented with a tear lion in which he might be found playing, playing with in his drawing room. The prize fighters Mendoza and Hammond the Black were among his visitors, and Henry Grattan was his devoted friend. So he had a pet lion and he used to ride his horse, Shylock, recklessly through the night. <laughs> I want to know how you can ride your horse recklessly through the night. I mean, he was probably pissed. That's probably the first part of it. Probably, probably just <laughs> drunk driving a horse. Uh, no, that that's even a, a thing? Uh, was there a drunk driving a horse? I feel like there was. Uh, I, I mean, you can get done for drunk driving a bike. Can you? If you are on a bicycle, yeah, in England. It doesn't have to have an engine, man. If you are in possession of a vehicle, you can be done for. You can be. You probably I, won't be, but you can technically be done for drink driving. I thought it was just like heavy machinery and motorised vehicles. No, because it's still a vehicle. It's still someone will run someone over and push back and hurt them. You could, but the more likely to just turn around and break the bike over your head. I mean, than they are if you hit them with a car. Depends who you run into, isn't it? Yeah, true. <laughs> hey, Christ. So, yeah. So this guy went through all that shit, became a tribe, became an honorary tribe, tribe chief, reinvented what was the first to perform the actual ending to a play, yep. uh, had all that shit happen, broke his legs, 
before he was 21. To do music and all that sort of stuff. And then turned up pissed to his own player, because why not? Yeah, why wouldn't you turn up pissed to your own player? Yeah, why not? Why <laughs> the fuck not? Oh, I thought, yeah. So that's Edmund Keane. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this one is just a quick one. It's just a quick little laugh one. Uh, but it's it's on the same premise of ridiculousness. And yes. it is, of course, in America. Um, it's in Portland, Oregon, in mm. September 25th, 1938. And this was printed on the front page. Um, Galilee R.I., September 24th, AP, Charles Keville walked into a temporary morgue and looked at a body which had been identified as his. Nope, he said, that ain't me, and walked out again. I mean, that's fair. Someone invited him in to check if the body was his. Um, The logic of that... <laughs> To, I mean, if you go to see him, see him, and like, no, I understand him walking in and being like, "No, dude, that's not me," right? But what I don't understand is them going, "You're, you need to come and tell them that that's not you because I think it is." Like, what? Wait, it's, it's like wasn't, <laughs> it's wasn't there one? Wasn't there one where like someone got? Officially diagnosed, uh, like someone got put into like obituary and stuff like that. And according to the government, he was dead, but he wasn't dead at all. So he had to go through all the shit of making it so that he wasn't dead anymore because the system had fucked up and thought he died. Yeah, but even so, he's just walked up and went, No, that's not me, and wandered off. I don't feel like that's proven you're not dead. I mean, if he, I feel like it is. Yeah, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna swing it back to war because I've got something to do with the Swedish Navy for the 1830s. It was a small Danish man attacking them constantly. No, this is to do with them preempting the future and getting it badly wrong. Oh, okay. In the 1830s, the Swedish Navy planted 300,000 oak trees to be used for ship production in the far future. So they were planning ahead, thinking, we're going to produce ships, we're going to plant 300,000 oak trees so that we can produce these ships. Do you know what? Can I just stop you there? You're saying that they failed because you wouldn't make ships out of wood anymore, but I'll say that that's actually a win because they've helped the environment because they didn't need to cut that down and make ships. They have. When they received word that the trees were fully grown and ready to be used in 1975... So if someone had to supervise them and like send words to the Swedish Navy saying, look, these trees are ready to be used, they yeah. had little use of them as mod more ships were built with metal. They could just build... I mean, we built one out of concrete, didn't we? Did we? Dude, there's a one in the river at Sunderland. It's, I'm sure it's in the, uh, the, the weir. There's a concrete ship. I would not be surprised, honestly. That because would, that's, that w- yeah. Because that's what you do when you're British. You go, I know what floats, concrete. I mean, to be fair, metal doesn't really float, so we're done well there. Yeah, you can't say, <laughs> I know what floats, concrete, and then look at all the metal ships sailing around where metal yeah. doesn't. Yeah, but there's a reason we don't... <coughs> I'm assuming there's a reason we don't have concrete ships. 
assuming there's a reason we don't have concrete cars. Uh, metal is a lot more buoyant than concrete. A lot less crumbly if you have a crash. <laughs> it's not as heavy. It's not as difficult to set or build on water or do or repairs move, in water. Or sail or power yeah. or maintain. Or, <laughs> you know, it's not as okay. good as defensive if you just look at any of the buildings that got hit by cannons and stuff. How would you take out a concrete ship? Theoretically, what would be the most effective? I mean, if it was built in the modern day, just any of the modern armaments could blast through the concrete. If you had thick enough concrete, because even like bank vaults and shit are literally concreted in with reinforced steel. World World War Two. There's an island in Japan. It has. It still has remains of concrete where the American Navy and the American Air Force came and bombed it, and the concrete just has massive holes where you can see where it, like a missile or a bomb or a gunshot just pierced through. Yeah, man. See. So, concrete for the win. Uh, anyway, my <laughs> point was, if you could seal it off somehow, hermetically... Like so, it, if, if, you, if you could make it, like, buoyant and... <coughs> I mean, no, that's, just... how you do with, that, that's how you do it with metal ships. That's how submarines work. You've got a chamber in it where you let it flood, and that's how it sinks, no, and then you let no. it fill up with air so that it's buoyant. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I mean, how would you, as an enemy, sink a ship? If, it, theoretically, concrete ships are floating around and everything, what's the Theoretically, easiest... con concrete ships? Yes. Uh, so, theoretically, take away the oxygen. If you could seal something around it, just take away all the oxygen. Honestly, theoretically, just let the birds shit on it, because eventually it will corrode the fucking thing. Dude, you'd be waiting a long time. Be, but... <laughs> I mean, a long time. No, but that, that no, would be a good it, job it's... for your fleet of geese, though. Yes, just shit all over the concrete. Just use acid, create yeah, exactly. acid rain with goose shit. Exactly. <laughs> no, man, because I have things about my armies. Do you want to know armies. my army? Someone's already started. Do you okay. want right? Um. A report in the Ningbo Evening News had said that 100,000 ducks would be sent from Zhejiang province to Pakistan to deal with the its worst locust invasion in two decades, generating 520 million views on China's Weibo social media platform on Thursday, and thousands of comments. China deployed ducks whose natural diets include insects to fight similar infestation in the northwest, northwestern Xinjiang region two decades ago reportedly with considerable effectiveness. Despite popular support for the idea in a country where cute ducks memes have become hugely popular, Zhang Long, a professor from China, Agricultural University, told report reporters in Pakistan that the ducks would not be suited to the conditions there. Ducks rely on water, but in Pakistan's desert areas, the temperature is very high, Zhang said. Zhang is part of a delegation of Chinese experts sent to help the South Asian country combat the locust uh, and advise these of chemical or biological pesticides. So this is the whole thing that they don't want to use biological pesticides. Right? So they were going to send an a partially aquatic creature, a creature that is known to be sitting on water just chilling, to a desert. Well, no, because they they're not going to send them. But they were expecting. So they were going to send 100,000 ducks. Um, they were just going to wander them into Pakistan from China. Have an to get army rid of, of ducks. But dude, do you know how effective it is? I found, I can't remember the, the name of it or anything like that, but there's a, a wine, what do you call it, a vineyard in South Africa, I think it is, 
Why was that... I going to say orchard? For <laughs> fucking wine. That is. It's a, it's a grape orchard. Uh, yeah. a, a vineyard. Um, in, I think it's South Africa, that literally they have, they don't use pesticides, they use ducks because they just eat the insects. And they're really good, <laughs> apparently. Um, just have them waddle along. Although, I suppose if they have, if they eat the grapes as well, that would possibly be bad. Yeah. So the locusts have already caused extensive damage in East Africa and India. Locust swarms can fly up to 90 miles a day with the wind and eat as much in one day as about 35,000 people. The Ningbo Evening News had quoted Lu Lizai, a researcher from the Zhehang Provincial Institute of Agricultural Technology, as saying the use of ducks was much less expensive and environmentally damaging than pesticides. Ducks like to stay in a group, so they're easier to manage than chickens, he said. A duck is also capable of eating more than 200 locusts per day, compared to just about 70 for a chicken. Uh, the article was amended on the 27th of February 2020 after Zhang Long rejected the Ningbo Evening News report that China was going to dispatch ducks to Pakistan. So, yeah, just so some. No, just the fact that he went, we're going to send 100,000 ducks to Pakistan, right? And they went, why would you do that? And his exact thing was, uh, it was so when you was to do with like. Uh, it's better than pesticides and stuff. But his quote that he chose to give was, ducks like to stay in a group, so they're much easier to manage than chickens, and a duck is also capable of eating more than 200 lotus per day compared to 70 for a chicken. He didn't say it's better for the environment or anything like that, he just went, well, they're better than chickens. Yeah. I, <laughs> I want to know who sat there and counted how many locusts a chicken can eat and how many a fucking duck can eat. I don't know, man. It sounds like a very, very boring task to do. Just sitting there with a click RC and every time a duck eats a locust in a day. Yeah. Oh god! Imagine me the person that has to work out that the 200, 200 feel, locusts a day. I feel like what they've done is they've sat and maybe watched it for like half an hour or an hour, and then they've just multiplied it by twenty-four or however Ooh. many. I feel like that's what they've done. I don't feel like someone sat there for an entire day watching a, ch- a duck and a chicken eat locusts. Yeah. I've got they it. It's the Vergenogt Law, Wine Estate, uh, is one of the oldest working farms in South Africa with the land rights granted in 1696. Um, and the Grey Cape Dutch homestead dates, dates back to 1733. Um, and it says um, they they are Indian runner ducks. Indian yep. runner ducks is that because they can run really fast, or is that just a nickname that came up from something stupid? Well, they're eating the insects like snails and stuff, so I don't think they need to be fast. I, no. I don't think I don't think a normal duck's got much trouble catching a snail. No, I wouldn't think so. Um, I'm just curious about the name though. Why are they called runner ducks? It's it's just um that's just the breed of them. Uh, so there are one thousand six hundred Indian runner ducks that live on the Vergnagod Low Wine Estate in South Africa. Um, okay. I found out why they're called runner ducks. Okay, they stand erect like penguins. Yes, that's a freaking sentence. Erect like penguins, and rather than waddling, they run. So the legit instead of waddling like a normal duck, they stand up straight and run. It's the start of my army. It is. <laughs> um. 
So it says more than 1,600 Indian running ducks live on the Wine Estate, uh, which has existed since 1696. But the feathered housemates are not just cute. They have been fulfilling an essential task in the wine growing there since the 1980s. And it's a gorgeous place. Um, Most vineyards are, though, because the need the need to be able to produce the grapes and so like as far as i'm aware most vineyards tend to be in beautiful places do i've got a picture of right uh, it says the ducks are the best employees i call our ducks the soldiers of our vineyards said the managing director corey's visa explaining that the original concept uh they eat aphids slugs and small worms they keep the vineyard completely pestry every two weeks the battalion is released on the property in the process, they are not only remove everything that could be the vines undoing, but also fertilize the soil. Only during the grape harvest do the ducks take a holiday, so the grapes are not eaten for a dessert. Speaking of food, fear not, the ducks are never eaten. Not, not even when they retire. That would be like eating a colleague, Gavin Moyes, head of the tasting room, told Atlas Obscura. The ducks, he says, are the best employees on the estate. I love the fact that, one, they had the common sense to not have the ducks out while the grapes are ripe so that they don't just have them as a, as a dessert like he said but to the fact that he's, he calls it deploying the battalion every couple of weeks yeah so deploy every couple of weeks at 7am they're all released from the pens in, and put into one large group right and they are guided to the vineyards for a day's work uh, they, they they're, take they're, they're not taken to the vineyards they're just guided uh, they're guided uh, so yeah, so they use them to to thingy. So they work from seven a.m. till three p.m. and then go home. Um, it doesn't just rely on ducks. It has a, a solar plant and a twenty-five hectare marsh conservation area. The idea of using ducks is not new, by the way. In Thailand, they have been using them for centuries to con- control pests and rice fields. Indian runner ducks, like those kept at the Vern Law estate are particularly suitable for this purpose although they cannot fly they have a perfect sense of smell which enables them to track down food so yeah they call them a battalion yeah i want a battalion of ducks can we have that, battalions of ducks that is my goal man <laughs> battalion of geese battalion of ducks 1600 ducks imagine being you know what's the best thing about that kyle is that they don't what? even keep them they guide them like two mile to the vineyards like yeah put the duck pen next to the vineyard for Surely. No. Parade the battalion through the town before they get to work. Can you imagine waiting for sixteen hundred ducks to cross the road on your way to work? <laughs> oh fuck! I'm gonna have to phone in again. <laughs> I feel like everybody in that area just knows now. Knows that there's going to be a t- battalion of ducks and just works around it. <laughs> Build them a little duck bridge. Right. I'm, I'm gonna call it there because my dad's yeah. legitimately jumped in the shower and started fucking singing. Yeah, we can just about hear audio of it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to call it there for this week's episode. I do apologise. For some reason, he's decided at half ten at night it's a good time for a shower and a shave. Dude, oh, I thought it was half nine. My, my laptop's slow. What's happening there? No, it's half ten, man. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay. My laptop's all kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for watching. We hope that you have enjoyed learning about new people and the legends that are the short miracle man who broke his legs in front of the king and turned up to his own show drunk. 
the soldier who in, in the navy who decided he's going to pick a fight with the English that would deliver in a battleship to the Swedish, and then upon realizing he ran out of ammo, asked if he could borrow more to continue the fight. And then the soldier who single-handedly Todger, who jumped over the trenches, ran towards a sniper, got shot twice, continued, but the missed him, continued on, fought, beat the sniper, and instead of killing the people in the trenches. Uh, disarmed them and made them surrender. And the French cavalry that captured 14 Dutch ships. Yes. <laughs> Let's not forget that. If there's any reason for Stefan to like the French, it's the fact that the cavalry captured ships. You know what? I am so disappointed that they only recorded successful cavalry charge on ships. That is it's French. <laughs> it hurts me. Ah, well, thank you very much. You could much look for at it another way. The French are so bad at navy and that they had to take horses because they had a better chance. Is that the way you're going to look at it now? Well, the French had a good army. They did have a good army that had, like, had a good. They had I mean, decent armies. Not as good as the English, but. They were still very flamboyant, but they had decent armies. Right. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for watching. I'm going to go before the whistling intensifies, and that's all you can hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We'll see you all next week, hopefully. See you next week, hopefully whistle-free. Yeah, 